Today we're going to talk a little bit about the music marketplace. Ooh, do 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 do. And what the heck that even means? And we're going to have a fantastic interview with Paul Smith, co-founder of Vultures Eight. You don't want to miss today's episode of Early Music Monday. Okay, so I've been thinking a lot about this, and I've talked about it before, kind of, but sort of in a dance around the bush kind of way, or a mention in passing, but I've been thinking a lot about the music marketplace. It's an interesting concept. I remember, I will never forget, well, and as I say that, I realize I don't really remember where I was. I was either in... composition master class or composition class or music history at BYU-Idaho. I was at BYU-Idaho in my undergrad. I know that. And I don't really remember where I heard it, but I remember thinking about it all the time, and it's never left me. I mean, clearly, I care a lot about it because I forgot who said it, and I forgot where I was anyway. But I will never forget the conversation and debate we had as a class about the difference between, we were talking about composers and the difference between composers who composed for their art form alone, regardless of whether they sold anything, were performed a lot, they didn't matter. They were making a statement with their art and then musicians and composers and artists who were what they considered populist artists or musicians, musicians who catered to what the public wanted, and so then they made a lot of money or had a big reputation or sold a lot or were performed a lot in their lifetime, but maybe didn't didn't make any waves. And I remember thinking that the way it was presented that There were those two extremes, and there wasn't really very much in the middle. Now, I think then, as an outside perspective, I was like, oh, the musicians who are just doing their art no matter what, they're the ones who make history but have miserable lives. Don't want to be that. That sounds like a dumb idea. The populace just kind of sell out and don't really make that high quality of art. Don't want to be that either. And so I've made it kind of my life's mission to always find a way to bring the audience, the populace, so to speak, to the art, to where you don't have to sacrifice either of those things. But that's a very, very difficult battle and a very uphill climb. And I think especially in the realm of early music, there's this concept of well, we want to we want to really honor what this was performed how this was performed to the best of our knowledge and be historically accurate in order to honor the musicians who created it and first performed it and then on the other hand you're like but it took years to gain an understanding sometimes understanding precedes appreciation 
where it's like the first time I heard some pieces of music, I was like, I don't really like this. And then I understood how it was constructed and studied it, and it became my favorite piece. Like, for the choral conductors out there, David Conti's piece, The Waking, was that for me. Where we first started, it was like, this is weird. I don't really like this. Now it's still one of my favorite pieces that I ever performed at BYU-Idaho. And it has such a great texture and these melodic fragments and this, I just think it's brilliant and I love it. And I used it as inspiration on several of the pieces that I've written. But the appreciation came after the understanding. So how long did it take most of the people listening to gain an appreciation, well, an understanding of early music or historical music and then therefore an appreciation? And we're trying... Well, again, maybe we're not trying. Some of us are trying, some of us are not, to get the audience to gain an appreciation for it. And that's a hard a hard battle. The marketplace is ruthless. And as it should be, it should be really hard to become really, really successful. It's supposed to be hard. And the resilience and the grit and the strength and the skill and the craft all come because of the difficulty. So that being said, we kind of have to ask ourselves, I ask myself this all the time when I'm programming, is am I trying to achieve some sort of balance between like the, the academic cerebral approach to this art is amazing and the quality is impeccable and is the audience going to care? Because in the end, honestly, I think that both extremes of the I'm going to do my art to express myself and I'm going to make a statement and this is my art and my art is me and to hell with the audience is dumb. And kind of egocentric to be really bold about it. I don't think that's the best approach. And the populists who just sell out and be like, well, I'm just going to mass produce gobs and gobs of music and and performances that are just like going to rake in the money and who cares what I produce is also dumb because you're just you're not timeless. You're playing the finite game. Both of those players, in one way or the other, are playing the finite game. Or can get caught in the trap of finite game if you're not careful. So I will never forget. I'm going to relay this story. There is a story of when I served for my church as a missionary. So for those of you who are not members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints don't know how missions in our faith work. You go for two years and you teach people about the gospel. And you have, you're always in twos, so you always have mission companions, and then there's transfers, so you get new companions all the time. So I had six companions and several areas, and then you have a mission president who's also called by the church and it's all volunteer like no one in no one who serves as part of the mission organization is paid they actually pay to go 
And so my mission president, very amazing person named Paul Beck, is was the global vice president of Procter and Gamble. Whoa. And he got called on a mission to be a mission president of all of us missionaries down in Phoenix. And he said, okay. So he left his job, left his family. Well, his wife came, but they left their family and they came to be our mission president for three years. And then he never went back to Procter and Gamble. He decided to do something else, I believe. Um, maybe he did for a little bit, but I can't remember what he did after he, he left the mission, but I will never forget. I was a zone leader which means I was kind of a, a little bit of a leader over a small group of missionaries. It doesn't really mean anything other than I just had them report to me the numbers of how many people they taught or whatever. <laughs> so I didn't really do much. But I remember I was meeting with some of the congregation leaders in the area as his own leader with our mission president, and it was these businessmen who were then ultimately lay ministers of these congregations. And the the area I served in, they all happened to be really successful businessmen, which was intimidating. And I was this 19-year-old kid who didn't know anything. And I remember I said, we have some ideas for how to improve missionary work in your area. blah 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 I gave my spiel or whatever. And they were kind of like, oh, okay, it sounds nice. And... Uh, it kind of died away, and I was like, huh, didn't really seem to take very well. And I was, I didn't realize how much they have over, like, how much is in their jurisdiction and their stewardship with taking care of the members of the congregation. It wasn't as high on their priority list as it was on mine, so I was, anyway, I was a little dejected, and I remember, I will never forget what my mission president said, because he came, and he, he ran it like a business, and he was like, look, we're all called Elder, Elder Kavanaugh. You're talking to businessmen. You have to, if you're going to get anything done, you have to find a way to make your idea become their idea. And I was like, huh. And at first, it kind of, kind of, it kind of put my walls up. I was like, this sounds a little manipulative. But then as I studied, and now years later, I realized that it's not manipulative. You're trying to, you're helping them gain ownership over the idea. Because people, I don't care if you're a businessman, if you're, if you're a whatever, whatever you are, a, a tiny child to the most mature person on the planet. Nobody likes being told what to do. Nobody likes it. Hey, do this. Well, why should it? There's instantly this kind of like, don't tell me what to do. And and I think that in a way, if you think about the let your idea become their idea is exactly what we're trying to do with early music. You have to let, and I think of it in educational terms too, of scaffolding. You're trying to enable and empower the audience to gain an appreciation for music that they didn't know anything about. So I ask you, why do you love early music? Historical music. I know why I love it. And I know why 
I continue to delve into it all the time. And so I take that challenge and I say, okay, well, this is why it helped me. Now, how am I going to present it in such a way that the audience can have a similar experience? Because I could just say, we are the early music choir, like premier early music choir in the state of Utah, and we're going to be the best at it, and people are just going to come. They're just going to appreciate it. Yeah, right. They're not going to just, like, come. It's not the field of dreams. If you build it, they will come. If you build it, they're not going to actually come anywhere because they're interested in their own stuff. That's really what the voice says. That's what the marketplace says. And that's good. That is a good thing. As counterintuitive as it is, it is a good thing. Because then you're, that's how you grow and become better. And that's how we propel the art forward. Is if we can say, hey, we're not going to sacrifice on quality. Because again, the finite game thinks, how am I going to get the most money of this right now? The infinite game says, how can I change the marketplace? How can I change the game? How can I stay in the game as long as possible? So I think, and you'll hear me tell Paul Smith this in the interview, but I think Vochese is the perfect example of this concept. Because they put out videos of, um, you know, the sound of silence by Simon and Garfunkel, and then the very next video that pops up in your playlist might be them singing Hymn to St. Cecilia by Benjamin Britten, which is an intellectual marathon, and I love it, but those are for very different audiences most of the time. So how did they bridge the gap? It's incredible, and I think that Paul and I delve into it a little bit, but I personally think that they've done it because they haven't sacrificed quality at all in any way, and they slowly introduce those things to their audience in concerts. They don't just perform the academic stuff. They don't just perform the pop stuff. They mix it all together, and they're not unique to that. We've talked to Simon Whiteley. The Queen Six does that. The King Singers do that. Several groups do that, but the way that they've also latched onto the actual marketplace and thought of it like a business has changed everything. And the way they've engaged with teenagers, again, between them and Eric Whitaker, contributing, like, single-handedly, those two really made choir cool again to teenagers, I think. So, with early music... That's the whole goal of Sound of Ages, first of all, is let's bring this music out of the museum a little bit. Let's bring the audience to it instead of just presenting it and hope they get it. And then at the same time, we have, okay, we're never going to sacrifice quality because you can't do it and not be top, top, top notch quality either. So that's my challenge to everyone is understand the marketplace. Think about the business side. Don't play the finite game. Don't be an egomaniac and just think about expressing yourself all the time. 
let's build bridges and connect and make the people around us fulfilled with the art. It's amazing. Paul Smith and I talk about that as well. So without any more waiting, I know you're tired of hearing from me. Let's go now to our interview with Paul Smith. Hello. Hello. How are you doing? Fine. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. It's so good to see you and and meet you. Thanks for taking the time. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Is it a bit early for you or are we doing okay? I'm I'm in my wife's office right now. We we come in early most days, so this is not a problem. (laughs) That's great. So how have things been? You guys been just busy as ever? Well, it's it's that funny funny world, isn't it? We're we're keeping busy and doing lots, but not quite sure when we're going to get back to what we would consider to be normal life. Right, right. We do actually have some live concerts happening this week in the UK, which is nice. So yeah, all, all being well, um, we are on stage for the next three nights after today, so that would be nice. Oh, that's amazing! And that those are the first live performances you'll have had in over a year, right? With an actual audience, basically. Yeah, we had one. Um, one flying trip to Italy when the um, restrictions got lifted for a little bit last midway through last year. Yeah. Um, but aside from that, we did a, a concert stream from St Andrews up in Scotland last week. And other than that, it's just been what we've been doing for Life in London and a lot of stuff in the recording studios and things like that. Yeah. So sure. <laughs> we're just hoping we're supposed to be in America for all of October, basically, and coming back in December. And we're just trying to fingers crossed wait that yeah it yeah seriously that's great how about that's, you how things with you uh it's been similar we've been pretty fortunate with uh here in here in utah it's been pretty open for a while now and so the the high school students i teach we were able to do all four concerts for our school year with a live audience and that's great yeah so that we we're we've been pretty fortunate pretty blessed and then Sound of Ages has done, we did the National ACDA Conference, which was... Oh, the online one that happened. The just... virtual one, yeah. So, But we were able to sing together without masks, and that was back in January. And then we did a live concert back in the beginning of May up in Cathedral in Salt Lake. So that was really nice and That's had lovely. an audience, and we're like, holy cow, what you is happening? Goodness, <laughs> yeah. Um, we're used to singing to a lens these days. We don't like people to clap at the end. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. It's really weird. We're like, oh, I have to turn around and like, yeah, it was very weird. But <laughs> so <clears throat> again, I really appreciate you coming on. I've been fascinated with Voces 8 for a really long time in terms of like as, from an artist perspective and from an entrepreneur perspective. And I feel like the my unique or my thoughts about the unique place that Voces 8 holds is how you guys have kind of been well let me say it this way I think in the last 20-ish years at least in America I think Eric Whitaker and Voces 8 could almost be (laughs) solely responsible for making choir cool to to teenagers (laughs) and because seriously like there's these teenage kids who like freak out about it and it's the same I I recognize the same kind of thing as when I was starting my undergrad back in 2007 ish 
with the, well and even before that the Eric Whitaker kind of phenomenon yeah and I recognize the same things the same kind of patterns and attitudes about Voce's eight so That's so I guess great to start. I don't think we, could, <laughs> we should end the podcast now <laughs> <laughs> exactly well <laughs> great That's really, thanks for coming really, yeah thanks it's no, really kind um oh if only we had the, the the glorious locks that Eric also had. I know, man. I'm losing my hair, so I can't. <laughs> I je- look in jealousy all the time. The, uh, but but so I guess my question is is from your perspective, I mean, I'm. How do you think? What do you think? Some things that you've done as Vochesay as an organization that maybe set you up to maybe be that kind of really popular group, I guess. Um, that's a, a, as I say, it's a very nice introduction. Um, and I don't quite know if, if I'm capable of answering it because from, <laughs> from the inside, we, I don't think we, we sit down and think, what are we going to do today? That's going to make us popular instead. We right. think we kind of think about, um, what it is that we want to do to make the, the best impact possible to change the most people's lives through the music that we make. Um, and through the, yeah. the work that we share. And I think if we go back to our origins, probably that, as you say, like year 16, I think we're into now, something like that. And my brother and I, Barney and I started the group very much with this dual idea that part of our life would be spent really trying to hone a world-class ensemble. Um, and the other part would be really thinking about how we provide opportunities for as many people as possible in education settings and in communities to access our music and to make music with us and that's those two key things i think probably have somehow combined um maybe even not as we intended from 15 years ago sure but that dual focus of mission i think around excellence and, and around inclusivity have been the two things that probably have helped us to to get into um hopefully people's hearts a bit because that's kind of you know that's where music lives isn't it you know, right we just try to share what we love in a way that hopefully people can understand. And I, and that to me is, you know, the fact that you don't think of it in that way is exactly, I think, what makes it possible for you to have such a success because you are thinking about the root of what is what role does music play in people's lives and how can we impact them then? And And I think that, it leads me to another question, I guess, <clears throat> that wasn't on the, the list of questions I sent you. So you might not be prepped for this one. No, so I, I, don't, I don't have them in front of me. So we're just freewheeling. It's okay. Good. Are- I, I love it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, but because I, in, in talking with um, members of Sound of Ages and with other conductors of other ensembles uh, here in America, I find that many conductors and arts organizations are either really out of touch with what the common audience wants or they care so much about it that they kind of they maybe don't have as high a standards in the art that they perform so they kind of lose the respect of the academy quote unquote. And so I think that's a really hard balance to find. What are some things that you and your brother and the the group talk about to make sure that you're juggling both of those things equally? Yeah, I mean, 
<clears throat> that that is very tricky. I think um, actually probably what we try to do, I mean, we come from a background, um, you know, and all of our singers come into the group. Um, you mentioned that you were, you saw some of our auditioning process a few years back. And so actually when someone joins um, Watchers 8, uh, there's, a, there's a sense of not just looking for someone who can sing, but actually someone who fits into the ethos of the foundation. So one of the nice things about a membership that has evolved over the years is that now our oldest member in the group is my brother in yeah. his late thirties. And I stepped out of the group a couple of years ago because, you know, I was just worried about that too. And, right. uh, and on the flip side, the youngest member is now in their early twenties. So actually we are constantly in a way, a bit, a bit like Dr. Who we're gradually regenerating. <laughs> so, it's uh, amazing. For better or worse. Um, yeah. and, um, but there is that sense of, um, you know, within the within the organisation, there's a constant rebirth that's happening, and that I think helps us to keep um, ourselves grounded and analysing ourselves and working as a group to to remould and refashion. But at the same time, there's always been because it's such a slow transition, a sense of the values that we hold and the, the place that we come from. And most of us have grown up in the cool tradition over here in the UK so um, a lot of us came to cathedrals and that kind of or Cambridge colleges these kind of kind of places we have three uh, singers now with our new singer who've come through the Trinity Cambridge uh, path so we, you know we keep getting asked in workshops how you know where have you come from what's your background and now three of them say the same which is very boring so we have to work <laughs> um, so you know there is that those kind of um, those kind of things but as I mentioned we also spend so much time in the in communities and with people right. that you're just listening you know the art of core music is listening isn't it and listening mm, yeah and so we try to listen not just with our music but with our um sort of minds turned to what connects people and i, I think whatever music we've sung ev forever we have tried to give it the respect that it's not just like we're early musicians and then if we sing a piece of jazz that's just something light to end the concert but actually no it's whatever we're doing we try to learn from people who are experts in that field and to then put that into what we do and hopefully that combination of things um, works for us. I'm sure there's plenty of people who are specialists in one thing will look at what we do and uh, disagree that we would right. that they'd expect but that's half the fun we we're always trying to learn <laughs> right so learning to do and it's never like since I started doing this podcast a year ago um, so this I've really this has been one of your like lockdown things, has it? Is that what got you into this or what made you start the podcast last year? That's a good question. I actually I actually had the idea before the lockdown started because I, I have been making short little five minute my five minute Facebook live videos called Early Music Monday, where I just like film myself being completely ridiculous about Renaissance composers. And Someone's gonna do it. <laughs> it's true. And I and I, my I love it more than is probably healthy but i just so then i was like i should make this a full podcast though and just go for it and then the lockdown happened and i was like okay i have to actually do this then so it's There's it's no excuses now to do yeah that. i literally <laughs> and as a educator i was like i have all summer what are you doing with your life be do something so i i it kind of came about that way but I realized with talking with all these great, amazing artists and uh, musicologists and conductors that the more I learn, the less I know. <laughs> and it's, it's, <laughs> and, 
<laughs> yeah, it's just so depressing. So, but I, I agree. I think that that's what, and that's what makes, again, to me, that's, I think, one of the things that makes Vochisate so accessible is that it's not this, it doesn't come across as this highly academic ensemble, but the level of performance and the repertoire that you do covers such a span that that the commoner loves Vochisate and experts, quote unquote, whatever that word means nowadays, <laughs> but, but, but choral professionals also love Vochisate because they recognize the quality. And so I, I think you've struck a really nice, amazing balance. Well, that's really kind. I do think we, one thing I would say probably is that we have worked and continue to work tremendously hard. And we have this group of people who are so dedicated to their art and so dedicated also to, to finding ways to share that with anyone, be it a four-year-old child or an 80-year-old yeah. who's used <laughs> their whole life. You know, that those two elements really feed in and i'm very lucky you know if i you talk about sort of our experts if we look at some of our singers they're not just singers they do other things too and johnny our bass for example is um one of the most geeky of geeky people when it comes to early <laughs> music he loves nothing more than diving into old uh, old things in libraries and putting right. together new scores and things for us so there's a there's an authenticity to, i think to our approach and if it's if it's something on the jazz side of things then blake will be diving off to do something and make yeah. sure so there's always that commitment to learning more which is really refreshing yeah i think i think so and i think that well so it leads me to my next question is which isn't actually related but it's a step back is how did the the group come about you just had this idea someday and it just blossomed it's funny isn't it you look back and you think oh that if i'd known this then would i have done this and right often, no right but um, actually I'm right happy, so I'm, I'm happy with that um yeah. i mean as i say barney and i w- were the kind of I, I suppose the driving force in, in getting the whole thing up and running um and we'd grown up singing we were at westminster abbey as choristers and all that kind of stuff and we'd been singing in a choir called the millennium youth choir which is an rscm thing and um, mm-hmm. we'd, we'd been kicked out of that because we were the whopping old age of 21 years old. Not not for doing anything wrong, I hasten to say, just because we're <laughs> out of the age bracket. Or well, I don't think we did too much wrong anyway. Um, so <laughs> At least we, you never got caught. So that's, exactly. that's all that really matters. <laughs> they, never, they never said that's why we left. Um, and so we just were looking for something to do in, in our holidays to keep singing, basically. And yeah. Uh, so we started this bigger chamber choir, Voces Cantabiles, with what a stupid name that is. And, um, <laughs> and it's in fact, so... <laughs> it's, it's such as life. But talk, talking of early music, I was actually speaking to someone last week who's come to, to Voces 8 in the last year, never heard of us. Oh, um, wow. But on, but on his shelf, he has a copy of an album of music by Robert Parsons that we did with our chamber choir, Voces Cantabiles. Um, wow. We, at the beginning of things all about lots of music that had never been recorded before so wow. you know, the, the geek was in us long long ago um but we we then um we entered a competition in italy and when we got there we realized that one of the categories was jazz so we cut from 16 or 24 of us down to eight for that category and we and we ended up winning it and um that was like oh okay that's that, that's <laughs> nice and we called ourselves Voces 8 just to go on stage for that because we were like, Voces Cantables, but eight of us, okay, Voces Tablets, that's fine. Nice. Uh, and it stuck. And now for the last 15 years, people say 
what why the name stupid name what a name <laughs> and we reached a point where our one of our trustees of our foundation over here um he's a branding he's a marketing guy that's what he does and he was like well yeah, it's not a great name, if we're being honest, <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, you're here now and you've got quite a big following. So you can't change it, it now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and once you've had to repeat it 20 times to get people to understand how to say it, then at least they've, they've really internalized it. So <laughs> exactly. That's um, incredible. Yeah. So it was really finding our way and just out of a love of singing that the whole thing was born. And then over the last um, 15 years, we've, I actually quit my job the next year and Barney gave up and we moved home with our parents and had to live there as we set the whole thing up and worked out how to start paying people and all that kind of thing. Nice. And then, yeah, we've built a foundation from those humble beginnings. Um, and I just can't really believe most days where that we're where we are now. Yeah. Uh, very grateful even in after this last year i'm still hugely grateful to all the team for everything they do to make the foundation work in so many different ways yeah wow what a great story and i think that the love of singing really is why we all do it because i've why we're here right it's not for the money right (laughs) right (laughs) my uh my free 90 free salary is (laughs) you know so but it's uh that's really Fascinating. So what, I guess what, when you took the leap to, to start paying people, what sort of, did you have to make like this mental shift between like, okay, are we really doing this? Or like, what was going through your head? And what, what kind of resources did you have and look into in order to take that leap between we're doing this as volunteers to, okay, this is it. Um, we, I think, well, I mentioned I quit my job. So I was working in Ireland for uh, the Irish Chamber Orchestra at the time mm-hmm. um, that, that the leap happened. Yeah. And uh, I got called into the office one day and I'd been w- running the education department and the development department for the for, for the orchestra. And then every weekend I'd be zipping off to go and do this fun little hobby that was developing called Watchers 8. Right. And so I got called in one day and he said, look, we, we love having you, Paul, but it seems like you're off to the the uh the other side of the water every every week to go and do the thing you love so maybe you should just choose which one you want to do and uh, and then go for it and i was about 23 at the time so yeah um i just took took a a minute and then i handed in my notice and barney came to get me um and <laughs> loaded all my stuff up in the car and we sat on the ferry and made our our business plan on a napkin as we were as we were coming back on the ferry and all the greatest of- companies do Absolutely. so <laughs> And of course, that proved out just turned out to be total rubbish compared to how things developed. But um, I think the critical thing we had in the early years of the group was that we got a very um, solid core membership of the eight of us. And even though some of the singers were getting paid part time and then working in cafes or doing other bits and bits and bobs, one of our singers was uh, doing a doctorate at the same time as being in the group. So he got funding to do that. So like every all, all of us kind of coxed and boxed I suppose would be the British way of putting it yeah uh, to make it work for those early years and it probably took about six or seven years to the point where we could now employ everyone full-time and yeah. it's quite a yeah. thing as, as you'll know to have a full-time ensemble that like if you think about how many there are in the US and how many there are in the UK that this is their job it's not many and yeah and I don't you know, know if I can think of you'd get what Chanticleer Cantus in America yeah um over here, we've got the King Singers and us and the BBC Singers, the right. full-time ones, I would say. So, yeah. 
it's not one many. hand yeah exactly. and how many of those are actually then also offering opportunities for for women to sing that's an unusual thing isn't it it's really yeah. it, it staggers me how few groups there are and one of the things i would almost challenge people to do is actually try to to make the leap because i believe there is more space in our world for full-time ensembles and i believe that working in that kind of way so allows you to create something better you talk about you know the the quality that we aspire to because it's the same singers every day and we're not freelancers i think that gives us a different ability to hone in on what we're doing um and in the british choral world there are lots of great choirs but if you look at the number of singers in each choir and how many of them sing in all of them there's quite an interesting crossover and that's yeah. absolutely another very successful model for doing things um in terms of how the industry works but for me my preference is this idea that we you know you have a group and it's those voices and they yeah. work together and they live together and they breathe together so that the music yeah. making is just a part of of who they are um, yeah and I, I mean, I grew up as an athlete, and I still play ice hockey all the time. And I have a game tonight, so gotta, oh, wow. so gotta make keep sure. This, keep this brief. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's not till like nine thirty at night, so we don't okay. play till late. We got got time to mentally prepare. But I think of it that way too. I mean, growing up, it was so hard to join a new team mm. because I had no, they had, I had no idea how those players thought, yeah. and. But you really do when you play. I played with this when growing up. I played like three sports year round with like the same six kids who I went to church with, <laughs> yeah. and my dad was the coach. So like it was just, and we I knew exactly where they were gonna be, yeah. and I and I stood. I mean, and then I equate that with choir. I stood next to one of my dear friends. His name is Stevie. My entire master's degree. In every choir we were in, he stood on the left of me. Yeah. And so, like, and you do. You start to know, okay, I know Stevie's probably going to breathe here because I know exactly how long he can he can hold a phrase. And yeah. I think it does make a huge difference. Yeah, from certainly from my time in, in, in the ensemble as a singer, for, what, 12 years I was singing in the group and uh, Dingle, our first bass, was next to me um, mm -hmm. the whole time. And we, we were together as choristers as well. So from the age of 10. Holy cow. 36 or whatever 35 we were basically singing together for like 25 years and always with him on my left yeah it's <laughs> just like listening and he had this huge voice and this and you know he's six foot five and i'm like five foot five so um I can, I can always tell what's going to happen and how it's going to happen and yeah it's just like second nature he takes a breath and i know exactly what's going to happen and I'm yeah sure and i think that that bond gets built up doesn't it and it's really it's a magical, beautiful thing, but it's not, there's no shortcut to it. You don't, you know, you can't just make it happen tomorrow. It's a... Right. I, t I, yeah. And that's the hard part, I think, is that some people, even me, when I first started Sound of Ages, I thought, okay, well, you're all, you all get paid to sing, not by me, but by other people. So, and we're here, so we can just do this. But it's like, no, rehearsal time is still really important and we can't just call it in and it, time together to let the music settle and and i yeah. think that i think that's that's real and i think again that's one of the things that is helps make you know vote say what it is is that same kind of concept yeah and it's kind of our hours in the logbook is what we talk about you know that's what you need yeah and you can't and there's no substitute just like you said you can't you can't get it any other way it's going, to, it's going to be interesting, actually, as we go back, fingers crossed, to touring, like with these next few days, actually having some live concerts. It's the 
the first time that Molly, our newest soprano, um, will be singing on stage. And, you know, we would normally say, like, as a new singer, the first 10 concerts, your mind is going to be really just exploding with the, the number of things that are happening in that live setting with all this memorized music all these different positions when you're talking when you're singing when you're speaking when's all this stuff happening but actually yeah. she's been in the group now since for a few months and actually so her first few concerts have been down a camera lens which is a different kind of stress as well yeah, um, so, you know that's really you know, that's hype. isn't it bad when bad enough that there's an audience of a few hundred people watching but when your first concert is a few thousand people streamed across the world somewhere and they can watch it back for days right. yeah but yeah in the words of filmmaker peter jackson pain is temporary and film is forever this <laughs> is <Yeah>. like huh. <laughs> actually peter jackson i've Someone told us that he's a fan of Watchers 8, and that was one of my biggest celebrity <gasps> moments. You literally have... My head fell off. <laughs> You've literally made it then. You guys yeah. can just call it in. <laughs> I, I had, we've had Peter Jackson, and we had John Williams came and sat in an audience once, and he didn't tell us he was going to be there. That was another head explosion. So That's amazing. A few, a few moments where we've really enjoyed it. So. That's really cool. That's really cool. So, So my next question is then... In terms of, um, I know you, you talked about like your mission is connecting with people and making sure that, you know, the music is touching their hearts and changing the world, literally. And I don't think that's hyperbolic to say because, you know, the world gets so loud. I think that's like the number one way to describe what's happening is just loud. Everyone's just loud about everything. And I yeah. think the stillness of music is really powerful. And so with that, it goes so much. I know that the, the foundation, it goes so much beyond what you record, where you perform, what you perform. What are some things that you've, in, in like in terms of the Voces 8 approach or the method, the Voces 8 method. Yeah. Um, how did that come about? And what are some other things that you do as an organization to facilitate the outreach beyond just the stage? That's a, a very good question. Well, um, first of all, we're lucky that within our foundation, we have not one but two ensembles these days. So we've got Voces Oh, 8 that's right. And Apollo 5, um, which is easier to say and spell. Um, <laughs> yes. So something, something's got better. Um, <laughs> they're actually a beautiful group, um, just fabulous singers. And um, they have really blossomed. I think uh, to have two ensembles in a, in a foundation is, again, something that probably as a choir or thinking about being a professional choir, you don't often think about them being two. And that's, I think, right. is one of the interesting challenges. We were thinking, how can we expand you know Fortress 8 is basically at capacity how can we reach more people well let's start another group and let's give yeah, them their yeah. own artistic integrity and their own identity so it's claire who runs that group and she chooses the music she programs things the group again works within their five people to determine yeah. how sound and their sound is really different from the watches eight sound so it's another ethos of artistic approach which i love yeah but they've helped us expand what we do as a as a charity and you mentioned the watches eight method uh that's actually a, a book i wrote now in, back in 2013 um because i got really fed up visiting schools and just experiencing day after day how little music provision there was and how that was having such a negative impact on the lives of students that I tried to work out um, 
by looking into the research that was being done at the time, but also then from speaking to teachers and learning in practice, if you are a teacher who has been told they have to run music in the school, but does not have any musical background at all, what can you do? Because you can just, you know, it's what a horrific thing to be told. It's like, imagine if I was told tonight I had to go and coach the ice hockey team that you're going to play. <laughs> I, would right. be, I would not be in good shape. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I tried to think about like what, how we can get people singing or cut, you know, people are terrified of using their voice. If you're a teacher and you've been told once in your life that you're no good at singing, then you're probably not going to be happy to teach singing. And or, they remember it forever. You know, how many compliments could you take and you'd forget them all in a, in a second, but one negative, that's all it takes for our little human brains to go, Oh, well, I don't <laughs> want to do that again. That's so sad, but it's so true. So the, so the method was designed to, to, try to address that problem and to basically create from the ground up a way for teachers who are not comfortable as musicians to to start making music in some way to enable leadership in the classroom for students as well as teachers to start understanding harmony and layering and structures and kind of a window into a world of music without necessarily saying here's the song we're going to learn today so it's kind of pre-singing if you like yeah There's no, no songs it's just this is an approach and once you get to songs then you can choose your songs because isn't it right. nice and you'll still have the basic um, methodology then in place that will enable you to understand not just let's sing a melody in a class and call that a song but his depth his texture you know coming from a world which loves polyphony how do you get someone who's not able to sing a melody to create music that has texture and layers and that i suppose was one of the big one of the big games. So we can basically combine research showing not just how music could, could happen, but also how music had a positive impact on the brain in terms of numeracy, literacy. Right. And thus also, I think one of the key problems in schools is not just that there isn't a teacher and the teaching provision, but there isn't a management structure in the schools that understands the positive impact that music can have on children's lives beyond music. And right. so the method the whole point of the method book is to basically say look here's something that's really easy won't cost you anything uh you can do it for like five minutes a day so it's not even going to take up a lot of your school time and the impact will not just be musical but it will be about improving every student's capabilities and it will also have a real positive impact in terms of social cohesion and community within the school yeah that was the that was the simple idea behind this little book which basically has people clapping and making sound and yeah uh, and so that's like the bedrock, I suppose, of what we do as a foundation, wherever we go, whether it's a professional choir or kids who are inner city London schools in, in kindergarten, there'll be an element of this kind of approach to making music and making sound. And on that, then you build everything else, depending on the people you're with. Um, yeah. And that that basic philosophy of adapting to people but using the bedrock of the foundation and then choosing repertoire and trying to open people's minds to all the music we love in a way that is yeah. approachable for those people is the constant game and challenge that we play with every project we run around the world yeah and, and i oh man that is really really cool because i think that it accomplishes like you said it's like arts advocacy singing advocacy at the same time as you don't you don't have to but but that's the great thing is you don't have to really like sell it or fake it you're not like manipulating this process it's all the evidence is there 
just there. Yeah, the evidence is there. Great people who are far more intelligent than me have, have shown that there is a positive impact by doing X, Y, and Z. And so right. we just help provide not the why, but the how. And so mm. we try just to come up with the practical answers of this is what we can do. And I love that, you know, we we just had a couple of videos because, you know, the, these days we only exist in the in the world of online, don't we? But in the last right. two months, I've seen a piece of music that we've sung and given to a group uh, included, you know, kids in inner city London schools, um, kids in very well to do um, schools who are a bit older in Belgium have done a video connected to music we've been making. And yeah. then I've got a video through from the Dallas Homeless Choir and all of wow. them, they're using the same resource successfully with people who are at very different parts of their lives and it's having a positive impact. And it's just yeah. such a, you see these stories and then to try and capture that story and, and tell it effectively is real, is a real challenge, but that's, that's the game that we also try and play. It's not like here's a, here's two pills, which one's good, which one's bad. It's like, how, how do you analyze the impact? Cause there is so much impact in, in this right. story. It's a, yeah. It's a good game. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think that, again, the fact that it can play to all of those different demographics is what makes it so, so relevant, and so successful. And, and I, I'm lucky, again, I'm lucky to live in a place that really values arts education. Um, yes. yes, you are. And, <laughs> and so it's... was I. I was so lucky to have this amazing upbringing. And that's why I just like, you know, we just want to find ways to share it, don't we? Right, exactly. Because I hear, and I hear stories all the time of when, when I go to conferences or whatever of teachers who are, their administrations threatening cutting the arts program. And I'm just like, uh, my, that's so sad. My, my, my principal's like amazing and basically lets me do whatever I want. <laughs> like he's, he's just like, yeah, well, you should be able to, sports can do this, then you can do this too. And he's like a yeah. sports guy. So he's, he's, in that world and but he's so ad advocates for us so strong so i but again to then take that and say okay well what why is this helping my students and then how because i think starting with why I, I mean i love the book by simon sinek if you know that book or that author simon sinek is a entrepreneur and a leadership um uh speaker and he has a book called start with why and it's all about finding your why and then you yeah i've learned something today thank you you're gonna have to send me a reading list after this. i i it's he he's i love simon Singh. he also talks about um that he wrote a book just recently called the infinite game and how businesses need to play the infinite game versus a finite game but i think that that's what and and groups companies um organizations foundations whatever who do that whether they realize or not, are the ones that are going to stay successful because they're making an impact and they start with why they do it, then they move on to how, and then they start, then they think about what. And so I think that you say that is really profound because you, you start with, well, why music? And then now here, teachers, here here's here's a how. And then they get to their own what. And that's the great thing is they can they can pick and choose. That I think is what's so important when you're teaching. You're not teaching what you want to teach you're teaching the people who are in the room with you right absolutely and, and everyone's everyone is going on a slightly different path i suspect unless yes. I, something about the human race so <laughs> you, you spot on <laughs> spot on so so my next question then moves more into the what realm i guess with with the music that you 
all perform. And when you're programming a CD or programming for like a video or programming a live concert for a tour, what are some different things you think, what makes those three things different in your mind and as an organization? It's a, that now that is a very you see you're getting into the weeds now as we say it's a, it's a complex question. I we're jumped getting, right in. I did, um, and I I think um, the nice thing is that I suspect for every ensemble it's a different process and mm-hmm. there are different paths, um, and even within our little foundation, um, I, I could think right now of the projects that we're working on and the genesis of them has been different uh, and yeah. the outcomes sometimes are driven by well let's take the obvious ones we have a record label um partnership with decca classics so um we signed a deal with them like eight years ago to 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 release uh, six albums and each time we release an album with them uh it's very much an exercise of them wanting to find out how to make a cd that's going to have a big reach and a big impact so right. they are right. you know if they're a big major record label their job is to sell what used to be cds and is now streams and <laughs> yeah. and so um we will sit down with them and in a dialogue with them uh we are thinking about music we want to sing but it has to hit certain benchmarks for them that they think will be successful for them because it's their product yeah Uh, yeah. whereas by comparison if we're doing an in-house recording for our own record label so we put out an album called after silence last year which was yeah celebratory 15th year um album what a so so curiously named isn't it that now it's become a title wasn't supposed to be at all um yeah no it's very (laughs) inspired for sure yeah or prescient um but yeah um that was very much from within the ensemble. What are the the musical paths that have led us to where we are? Whether it was um, Renaissance music or some of the contemporary composers, thinking about relationships. We've talked about Mr. Whitaker already, and yeah. actually, you know, some of his music fitted really beautifully on the album. So yeah. sometimes it's something like that, a compilation, and other times it's working with some of the composers that we like to work with. So our current composer in residence is Roxana Panufnik. Previously, it's been mm. Jonathan Dove. Uh, before that, Oli Yelo. Um, last year, we commissioned six works from six different composers, and I even managed to make one of the composers me, which was fun. Uh, I like commissioning yeah. my things. That's the best <laughs> way to get books, I find. Yeah, um, wow. Man, how did I never that, thought of that? Yeah, come on. And you're a composer as well, I think, aren't you? You write, uh, I've seen, I've seen you're a bit of a composer. Kind of. I don't know. I'm having, I, I, I'm, it's not public record yet, but I think my first published piece is coming soon. Oh, BYU Singers did a, BYU Singers com- commissioned a piece and I, because the conductor was my mentor and he already, I, I had already showed him the piece and he just commissioned some tweaks and, and so, but, so we'll like, see. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes anyway. it's working with composers. Um, and then if we're thinking about videos, um, again, we try to think about, tying that together with albums and sheet music and concerts so if possible we try to work out how a program might tell a story or have a a mood a vibe to it um, be something that's going to connect with people and then think about within that program what strand will go best in different ways so what piece Mm. might be newly published what piece might be on an album and try to sort of 
tie the whole things together. So rather than seeing everything in different areas, we try to think about them existing, but also then feeding into the the whole. Um, and then sometimes, you know, when we're on tour, an early music festival will book us and they will want us to sing a music of X, Y, or Z. And so then we build a program to respond to that. So yeah. sometimes it, our, our plans come from within and sometimes they come mm. from, from other parts of our spheres, if you like. And yeah. I quite like that because that means that lots of people are thinking about things they would like to hear from us. We just got a, there's a new um, theatre production. I don't know if you've heard about it in London called uh, Bach and Sons, which opened like last week. No. Uh, um, Simon Russell Beale, who is amazing, is playing Bach. And um, about two months ago, we got a call from them saying that they wanted us to come and record the music. So Wow. So, done all of the music for this new theater production which is the first time we've ever done anything like that so all across the the production you keep hearing excerpts of bark like two bars here three bars there wow the bit where they are sing as out of tune as possible <laughs> so it's like it's great isn't that exciting to be sent into a recording studio and to, to, to be told to sing out of tune <laughs> I'm sure that's actually probably harder at this point. Yeah, <laughs> Just like, hated. I really uh, hated that. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do it. I can't do it. We're going to do this. This is our new path. <laughs> yeah. We are out of tune singing as much as possible from now on. It's great out really popular. <laughs> great opportunity for a prank right there. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, um, our, uh, the things that we record come from everywhere, and sometimes it's. Um, the group as well like blake has written some arrangements i do some compositions for the group barney's done some arrangements so we try to feed the artists in the group uh, giving them opportunities to be expressive yeah. at the same time there are so many amazing composers around the world and so much early music that we love singing and right. so much other stuff too not even just early music much as we we love it you know right uh, right we try to to do as much as possible and we're getting so many scores sent to us that it's a, the challenge is actually to try not to upset people because we can't say yes to everything. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, well, yeah, and you have to kind of use that 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 kind of judgment call and say what's going to feed the you know a tribute to the goal the most and, yeah. and it's fit. Balancing, you know, balancing right. everything. Constant game of equilibrium. Because, and I think that that's what makes. Again, I think that's what is so accessible to teenagers because I'm convinced ever since like the Beatles that if the teenagers think it's cool, it will eventually like become cool to the mass populace as opposed to the adults thinking it's cool. And then, yeah, you can't ever force it down from the adults, can you? But yeah, it's but but I think that that the fact that the and not in some sort of pseudo way but in a very real sense that they feel like whoa i'm entertained and i'm learning something mm. and i think if if young people get that sense they'll they'll bite on that every time and so i think that that's yeah. the equilibrium game we play is i love um I love the honesty that you get from uh, anyone about, you know, under the age of what, 15, 16, basically guaranteed honesty. If they like it, great. If they don't, they're just going to let you know. Yeah, I think, it's the I best. It's really good for all of our singers to be in a place where we so, are so regularly interacting in a normal world with um, people in schools that yeah. you can 
can sing a piece of talus to them. And if they don't like it, that's great. That's fine. It's their choice. But what I find to be more often the case is actually we have a preconception that someone might not like talus, but then actually you sing a piece and the it's a it is beautiful and that's probably why we love it in the first place right b i find that um if you're at school if you're like a 10 year old child and you hear something that is good you will recognize the goodness of it and often i think adults would do themselves down because they're worried about being cool whereas actually all you can really be is you and i i know how uncool or cool i am it's much more uncool than cool um we're in the I, same club I, then. I've you know, <laughs> reached a point in my life where I can accept that. And if someone's uh, interested in, in um, the stuff I also like, great. But if not, right. I've shared what makes me fall in love with stuff, you know? Yeah. And I think it's that passion that I can share as much sometimes as the actual music I might be singing. And kids will give you such a great response um, yeah. when it, uh, to what you're doing. It's just brilliant to see, to see yeah. uh, singers react to them. So, yeah. So, so one more weeds question, and then I, and then I'll let you go. Um, the uh, I, I in talking to because I've talked to Chris Gabitas and I've yeah, talked. Yeah, I saw you had a great lineup of people. Yeah. yeah, it's been really fun, and I think it's because of the the lockdown. People have been like, well, okay, sure, yeah, <laughs> I have nothing great. else to do. <laughs> Whereas I'm not sure if it would have happened that way otherwise. But so I'm I'm really grateful. But the. Uh, the, and and even um, especially Simon Whiteley talking about the Queen Six. You had and, Simon on. I didn't see you'd had Simon. He's a great. He he was one of the original members of Watchers Eight. Like he is, he was. He, yeah. He yeah, didn't even we were, tell me that. Well, uh, I mean, very early years. Like he probably sang like three gigs with the group. But that's yeah, great. We, we were friends growing up. So. Oh um, uh, yeah. I love him. Love yeah, him. I love Simon. It was a great. It was great to talk to him. And I, and I see some similar thing and in in the way that the queen six approaches a performance and the way that voters eight approaches a performance i think that i see a lot of similarities where it's like we're going to bring we're going to bring this really serious music kind of let and make it less serious without sacrificing the quality and then we're going to do this fun music and we're going to mix like you said all of these different kind of Mm -hmm. genres together yeah. So what, in your mind, what are some, to get real nerdy, I guess, what are some musical elements or some, th- or maybe non-musical elements that you see that connect early music to the contemporary repertoire that you, you guys perform, whether it's jazz or, or anything? Oh, well, that's a good question. I mean, uh, I mentioned I spend quite a lot of um, my time these days composing and actually yeah. I... I really, it, when I'm writing something, so often it's either paired with or inspired by a piece from the Renaissance or a piece. Well, of perfect. The... So literally, I, I will find a fragment of something that I like and I will just riff on that all day. And that for the last Apollo 5 album, I actually, um, we paired it with a bit of Talis, Why Futh in Fight, which you'll know, I'm sure. Yeah, and yeah. 
And then um, I'd taken like a motif that I liked and some text from Britain's Hymn to St. Cecilia mm. and tapped in a little bit of Vaughan Williams as well. And I kind of, you know, that piece, I just wanted to almost thread little elements of the music that I'd grown up with in, in the Abbey and the composers that I love from the British world into a contemporary composition. So yeah. on a totally nerdy level, if you dive into that track and listen to it and the pair, they literally run together. So the last note of the talus feeds into the first note and, and off it goes. Okay, um, I'm doing it like so right after this. I'm going to go and <laughs> um but so on a totally like um nerdy level, that's my, that's my jam basically. Yeah. I, would, I I just adore stuff in the Renaissance and finding ways to weave it into contemporary composition. I was actually talking to a we had in a radio show in France maybe a year or two ago and mm -hmm. uh the radio host commented that she found particularly in choral music more than other types of music that there's there often seems to be more of a line back through history in the types of com contemporary composition and i think I, I i hadn't really thought of that before compared to other genres but actually as i've reflected on it i do find more and more that there is that inspiration that we gain from the from music that has come before us that exists now in the contemporary choral sphere and i suspect in part that's also because of where music is being written from and who mm. who who is writing it so i've grown up having been in westminster abbey for you know my formative years i lived yeah. in abbey so i can't <laughs> help but be like inspired by the space by the people who wrote in there by the people who lived and worked there it's yeah. just kind of it has set me off into the life that i now have and yeah. um i i think with the world of choir and if you you know if ever i know the american history is not quite as long as the as the ones over here in old europe but um but that idea of being in a building that that has had a type of music in it for 800 years pick a, you know pick a number right and, right and then being being part of that journey i think is a really amazing thing and this is um something that i i don't think is going to go away because of the spaces that we sing in as well as the great music that we have in our history so yeah. maybe there's a little something there but then in terms of techniques that's a whole nother question you're right you're right, right. We, and we can and we can do a whole i'm sure that takes that's a whole another whole other episode to I mean, to, God, yes. to get into the weeds because but but i think that that sets it up beautifully and i as you were speaking i think that i think Maybe some of the reasons, I guess, uh, that vo vocal music is because of its specific role maybe in religious services. And there's probably, you know, this might sound, some people might be offended by this, but I think that maybe perhaps that singers, like the voice is probably a little bit more contained in terms of its experimental technique than perhaps other instruments are you get into extended techniques of string instruments and all the alternate tunings and all kinds of other stuff and then that kind of and i don't know very many singers that love singing atonal music or or stuff that's uncomfortable it's like okay i can do it but it's not my favorite so i think it probably actually i mean just just on that um, yeah no we were doing a um, recording for one of our Live from London concerts that's going to go out next month, yesterday, the day before. And we were singing a piece of Philip Glass, um, Vessels. And, yeah. um, like, as you know, for the players, it's quite repetitive and hard work, and the lips are tired by the end. But the things he asks the singers to do are so horrible 
Like the effect is brilliant. Right. And, like every singer comes off stage after that seven minute piece. Just like, oh my God, I just, <laughs> like, I'm done. I'm done. Calling um, it tap out. <laughs> um, so, but uh, sorry, that's a, a bit. No, like, yeah. But yeah, there was also this idea probably that the voice, you know, some, some instruments have not existed as long as the human voice, all of them, in fact. Yeah, and yeah we were, exactly. And we were singing, we were singing before we were speaking. So, mm. you know, as a mode of communication. But if you just go back in the last few hundred years and imagine that people go to church and they can't necessarily read, but they would be right. hearing music, and that is helping them understand and feel connected to heaven. The yeah. Stuff that, you know, the stuff that the voices are doing and the pictures that are being woven by the human voice um i can't fail i don't think to to inspire us and connect us to something greater than ourselves yeah what a great ending that was fantastic just That's right quite, there we have talked far too long already <laughs> oh but thank you seriously so much for coming on i really i really appreciate it it's been really enlightening and really great to hear kind of what continues to happen over there across the pond and hopefully bring some of those ideas over here and, and well, continue to build each other up. I think the thing I've loved more than anything this year is collaboration. And sometimes that's been across the pond. We've had like American groups. We mentioned Chanticleer featured in our yeah. yeah. And also like I get to sit in because we've turned our center in London, which we didn't even mention. We have our own space. I know. Sorry, total. I've failed. <clears throat> I'm going to get told off by someone for not mentioning that till now. <laughs> but, but because we had this church in London that is our space, we've been able to turn into a broadcasting studio. And I've basically been behind the camera watching some of the best groups I could possibly imagine and dream of spending time learning from and seeing not just the concerts, but how they rehearse and collaborating yeah. with the, really fun this week we just did a first ever collaboration with watchers eight and the king singers wow and in the same space for the first time it was quite fun i have to say that's so amazing so amazing yeah I'd, it was on my list of questions the live from london but it just yeah. so we'll have to do this again sometime and again. and yeah. and uh make sure nice. that it happens and you don't forget anything <laughs> Yeah, I'll, I'll come with my list prepared next time. But no, look, thank you so much for having me and uh, good luck with all you're doing. And hopefully post-pandemic, we can actually continue this conversation in person. Yeah, which would be great. Thanks everyone for tuning in to Early Music Monday so great to have a sit down with Paul He's such a great person and has a great perspective on music and business and the marketplace and I think that it's amazing and we can all contribute to make early music everyone's favorite genre we can do it anyway check out Votus 8 live from London concert series it's incredible if you like the show give us a rating a review a share a like a post a shout out an awkward dinner conversation plug whatever the case may be to help spread the goodness of early music check out sound of ages info on sound of ages and we'll catch you next time on early music monday